And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you <clears throat> with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand, then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. And as the Lord had commanded him, he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. The word of the Lord. Let's continue our prayer. Father, we ask that you would uh, be with us this morning. Please speak through Andrew into our hearts. Help us not to just hear the word, but actually make moves in our life that will reflect your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We have this rhythm in our household, at least a little bit more when the kids were younger, where every other week was big clean. Uh, everybody had responsibility to do their room on Saturday morning, but then every other week they also had an additional chore. So it may be a bathroom or the kitchen or you know, some other part of the house, the back hallway, and, and we would all engage in, in big clean. So there's nine of us uh, working at the house trying to scrub away all the dust and grime from what was going on the rest of uh, our lives. Big Clean was always a bit of a challenge uh, for the kids at different ages along the way. And I, I don't know if I'm recalling a specific incident as much as a, a sense there would be a... 
you know, a, a checking of the chores and uh, the, the standards would, would not be quite uh, acceded to and, and we would have to have discussion with the kids at, uh, you know, when we clean, we actually try to get the dirt up uh, and I realize that you guys are having fun, screwing around or, you know, just not paying attention or you girls are doing this. Anyway, it, you know, it didn't always go well. It would be frustration for the kids, uh, frustration for the parents, and you know, I don't know if this was actually external or just internal, but it felt like we were all crying. Uh, it felt like we were all just uh, feeling the pain of, of brokenness and failure. And I know that that's true for the kids. I mean, it's tough being a kid. I recently read an article that described, you know, adolescence, teenage years, preteens as like an earthquake, an avalanche, and a tornado all wrapped up into one. Uh, you, you hear testimonies from uh, parents. They're like, I, I, I want nothing better than uh, to do a good job raising these kids and the fear and the admonition of the Lord, but I just feel like such a failure, and I feel like we can't even get our house clean. How, uh, how can we get our hearts clean? All of these different things. And so we cry out to the Lord in, in the midst of our mess. Uh, zooming out a little bit, of course, this week, uh, like many of you, just been dismayed about some of the images that, that we see in Afghanistan. I mean, it's so difficult, and my heart does not want to keep looking at these things, and my tendency is to avoid pain, look away. Uh, but when you see people literally hanging on to an airplane, trying to get out of a country, you know, falling off as the airplane uh, ascends into the sky. What do we do? We, we cry out to the Lord, you know, in, in little things like cleaning a house, uh, operating as a family, big things like a country that is going through persecution and, uh, sorry, Rich, uh, just knock that, uh, you know, a country that is going through persecution and everything in between. And that's certainly where we are with regards to where the Israelites are. We've been looking these last couple of weeks, and I really wish in one sense I could have done all of 32 to 34 in one sitting, but I'm not sure that you guys have a 90-minute attention span. Um, but, but 32 to 34, this is all a unit. And uh, here we are in the midst of a grievous, grievous situation where the whole community is crying out. You know, Moses gives voice to it, Lord, we need your help. Please show us your glory. Meet us here in the midst of our brokenness. It's been described this way, uh, that when we come to chapter 32, it's like the Israelites are committing adultery on their wedding night. They've just had, you know, in Exodus 24, the covenant sealed to them, and virtually no time goes before they're seeking after other gods, going after other lovers. And so here we are in the wilderness in this absolute disaster of a situation, crying out, please, Lord, show us your glory. 
And God answers this. So you have to read 34 in context with 32 and 33. You can't just come to it and say, this uh, A contextually tells us who the Lord is. It is answering specifically the brokenness, the idolatry, the adultery of this people of Israel, and we see the Lord's glory. And so I want to walk through that with you this morning, just basically two things. Uh, I, I want you to see, I want you to, to feel, to experience, uh, to have your hearts kindled uh, by the glory of God, and then secondly, to see how that impacts our own radiance as we see Moses and his shining face. So first of all, the glory of God. Now, what do you think of when you think of the glory of God? You know, maybe you think of fire, maybe you think of, uh, you think of uh, destruction, maybe you think of what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 40 when the, when the glory of God comes and descends, thanks brother, uh, comes and descends. I think he's more concerned about the guitar than me, uh, which is okay. You know, the glory of God that will come and descend in fire on, on the tabernacle, or we see that in the, in the temple, and we certainly see that here in this passage. You know, as God is talking to Moses, he says, uh, you cannot see my face, for man will not see me and live. Behold, there's a place where you can stand on a rock, and my glory passes by. I will cover you with my hand until I pass by, and then you can see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Uh, and then a little bit later in 34, 3 and 4, no one come with you on the mountain. Uh, let no one be seen throughout the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. I mean, certainly if you do not have sort of this concept of glory that can kill uh, as part of your concept of who God is, then you don't have the complete picture of the biblical God. Uh, God reveals himself. God is this one who inhabits uh, glory in a, very, in a very real and a very powerful way. But that is not the primary purpose of this text. That is not the primary purpose of this text in this context, in the context of answering uh, the idolatry, the adultery of the Israelites. Because, as we see in verse 4, verse 5, Moses goes up to the mountain. The Lord descends in the cloud and stands with him there, and he proclaims the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, I'm in verse 6, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Earlier, Moses it says, please show me your glory. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
One of the things, and I think the thing that uh, God wants us to see here, is that His glory, while it encompasses all of the other sort of... um, uh, the holiness of who He is and, and the otherworldliness of who He is, His glory draws us in to His goodness. His glory uh, is portrayed in His graciousness, His mercy, His compassion, this abounding, steadfast love to thousands Uh, That is the essence of His glory. It's interesting if you go back and you compare Exodus 20, verse 5, which is in the Ten Commandments, uh, God says, you shall have no other gods before me, Uh, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Very similar language here that God is using in Exodus 34 with some significant differences. You know, one is just the order. He he starts with His mercy, His love, His forgiveness. In the context of this wedding night adultery, He starts with mercy. He starts with forgiveness. He starts with uh, inviting people into uh, this aspect of his presence. He takes away the conditions. He doesn't say in there, keeping covenant with those who keep my commandments. Uh, He takes out this phrase, I am a jealous God. He is shining. With his glory, he is shining the manifold, magnanimous light of his mercy, compassion, abounding steadfast love to thousands. Notice he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, visiting the iniquities to the third and the fourth generation. There is a terminus to that that we can count on one hand, whereas with his mercy, it is thousands. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. It's interesting to stop in the midst of our own pain and crying out and say, what do we need to hear from the Lord? What is it that we, we need to understand most fundamentally about who he is? And his answer is, you need to understand that I am a God who is gracious I am a God who is merciful, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sins, keeping covenant with thousands who have broken covenant with me. I recently came across a book geared towards high schoolers. Uh, It's actually not uh, printed yet. And, And they say, this is what I wish I knew in high school. I, I wish I knew a God uh, who, who, was, who was perfect, who perfectly loved me. I wish I knew that because God loved 
loved me so much that he died for me. I wish I knew what it was like to have hope for the future because I'm confident that God has a plan for my life. I wish I knew what it was like to feel the grace and the mercy when you mess up big time because forgiveness flows out of God. I wish I knew what it was like to have joy because relationship with him is the source of all joy. I wish I knew that though I cannot avoid pain and challenges in life, those come with the territory, that with God, however, I can walk through those challenges with greater hope and freedom. Jonathan Edwards, who is probably most famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he once preached a, a sermon uh, specifically to the children of his congregation. He invited uh, the adults to listen in. Uh, but the, the, the subject, the, the direction of his sermon was, was this. There is no love, and I'm quoting, there is no love so great and so wonderful which is at the heart of Christ. He is the one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pit those that are suffering in sorrowful circumstances. He is ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances, one that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in this world as the sun is brighter than a candle. Parents are often full of kindness toward their children, but that is no kindness like Jesus Christ. This is the heart of God. I am going to make all my goodness pass before you so that you know, even in the midst of this disaster that you are in, even in the midst of this, you will know that you can come to me. You will know that my heart is toward you and for you. You will know that there is forgiveness. There is no sin that can't be reached. You can't out-sin the mercy of God. God's mercy is steadfast. It is his hesed, love. You cannot exhaust it. And just as that is true in Edward's day, just as it was true in Moses' day, so it is true in our day. No matter where you are, whether you are a young person, whether you are a parent who is feeling like a failure, whether you are coming towards the end of your days dealing with you know, diminished bodily activity, diminished uh, time on earth, remembering the love of God uh, that so, so dwarfs uh, everything else about him. He pours that goodness out to us. Now, I do want to highlight uh, that as he says, you know, I will make all my goodness pass before him. He does not omit that he visits the iniquity upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, some of you may say, well, that doesn't seem like very good of God. You know, if God is all mercy and forgiveness and steadfast love, couldn't he just skip that part? You know, couldn't he just, uh, you know, omit the fact that 
he, he visits the iniquity on those who are guilty. And of course, we've seen this, right, in chapter 32, as the Levites went through the camp and 3,000 of them paid for their idolatry in that moment. How do we understand this? Well, let me just highlight, and I think you know this, I think you know it instinctively if, if you couldn't articulate it and put words to it. This is part of God's goodness. Part of God's goodness is that He is just, that, that He can't just gloss over sin, that He just can't gloss over the pain and the hurt. I mean, we, we need to know this. I mean, we, we need to know this if you are a Christian in America thinking about praying for Christians in Afghanistan. And, and what they are facing with the Taliban and what they are facing with uh, the, the radical Islam that, that wants to persecute and wipe out. If you, if you don't have a just God, you don't have a good God. And, and so his, his justice is part of his goodness. I think I've shared with you before Miroslav Volf, uh, who... Um, has written a lot about these. He's Croatian. Uh, he grew up in Croatia, former Yugoslavia, part of the Serbs, Croats. He, he's seen all of this persecution. Uh, and as a young man, uh, his own sort of, his own testimony is that I, d I didn't have the luxury of entertaining faith merely as a set of propositions that you either can or don't have to assent to. He had to really think about it. He had to own it. Do I believe these things? A and he, he comes to a, a a thesis of a practice of nonviolence. But listen to what he says about this. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians. So what he's saying is, I believe that we can be nonviolent, but the reason that I believe that is because I believe in a God who is just. I believe in a God who, who takes divine vengeance. He says, uh, this is unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Imagine that your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. When you ponder that, that reality, the goodness of God, the justice of God, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. But in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of an innocent, this fantasy will surely die. We, we have to believe in a God who is just. And we have to believe that His justice is part of His goodness. I, I think, again, we implicitly get this, right? We even see it in our culture, you know, no justice, no peace, 
Uh, no justice, no peace. The, the play on the word no there. Uh, people are crying out for that. Why? Well, it's a, it's a biblical idea that is embedded in our culture. And even if those who are, uh, are proclaiming that slogan don't walk with Christ, they, they are proclaiming something that is true. Uh, that, that God is a God who cares about justice. God is a God who cares about peace. Charlie Dates, who is an American pastor, uh, a few years ago, he says, Today we are witnessing the emergence of a new generation of Americans that are fascinated with justice. He's not talking about necessarily Christians because he goes on to say, Unfortunately, they haven't met the author of righteousness. They're trying to get justice on the streets apart from understanding righteousness that is taught in our churches, and they will never find that. He goes on, though, to challenge the church, and he says, at the same time, we as a church, or at least some segments of it, we are, we are preaching righteousness in our pulpits, but we will not fight for justice. Both of those are insufficient. Both of those are incomplete. Neither represent the full scope of this God that we see in Exodus 34. God is a God who is merciful and compassionate. He is keeping steadfast love for thousands, but he will not pass by the transgressions of uh, the iniquities of the fathers to the children to the third and the fourth generations. And there are things to think about even in that formulation. What does that mean for us today? But don't miss it. God displays himself. He wants us to see him. He says, what is it that you need in the midst of your moment in the desert uh, your adulterous moment where the whole community is hurting, what is it that you need? You need to understand me. It's really interesting. We're going to go here next week. But when the Israelites come out of this and they begin their discipleship, if you look at chapter 35, the very first thing that they do is Sabbath. They rest, they gaze, they reflect on who God is, and that's what God is inviting us to do today. You know, just memorize those verses, uh, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in compassion and mercy, showing steadfast love to thousands. Allow those verses to, to come into your heart. You know, keep meditating on them, perseverating on them. And they will change the way that we think about our world. They'll change the way we interact with, with one another. Uh, they'll change the way that the world sees us. Uh, the world that is outside of a relationship with Jesus. How do I know that? Well, notice this next section, and I want to read with you a couple of verses here towards the end of this passage, beginning in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, these are printed in your bulletin. Uh, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. 
Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near to him, but Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near. He commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with them in my, uh, on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with them, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Such an interesting effect. Man, I'm struggling today. Uh, such an interesting effect uh, that, that Moses' meeting with God um, has on him. He, he becomes radiant. You know, he sees God's glory, and it's as if God's glory uh, gives him this gigantic sunburn of radiance. Uh, he is, is just glowing. The, the skin of his face is glowing so much so that the people can't talk to him. I'm imagining, you know, their, their first conversation with him. He comes down from the mountain. He doesn't know it, but the people are all like cowering away and What's the problem, Aaron? What's going on? Well, Moses, you're, you're glowing. Uh, you're radioactive. We, we can't look at you anymore. Uh, you've got to do something about this. So Moses puts the veil over his face. It hit me about mile 1.6 of my run on Friday as I was meditating on this that we have examples of masking in the Old Testament. Uh, that uh, Moses was willing to wear a mask for the sake of others. And incidentally, it, there's no sense in which this ever stops for Moses. You know, this is an ongoing thing. He wears this veil in the hot desert for the rest of his life uh, as he's leading these Israelites for, for 40 years. That is not the direct application of this text, incidentally, uh, but it was an interesting, serendipitous uh, sort of, um, you know, one of those things that God does. But what's going on with this veil and this mask? What's going on with Moses? Well, Moses has God's glory, and, and he is radiant, uh, and he puts a veil over him similar to the way that the Israelites had a veil over the Holy of Holies, uh, similar to the way that the, the Israelites couldn't come into the direct presence of God without something mediating, something in between. So Moses, in a very real sense, has become that Holy of Holies. He has become that holy place. He's, he's reflecting it so much. One writer puts it this way. Within the broader context of Exodus, we may think of Moses' veil functioning in a similar way to the veil or the curtain in the tabernacle. Just as the people could not enter the most holy place to behold God's glory, now they cannot behold the glory of God reflected in Moses. He has, therefore become the embodiment of the tabernacle. His role as mediator has reached a level and a depth not yet attained. So do you understand what is happening? Is, is Moses is such a container for the glory of God uh, that the people, well, because they have not yet attained this level, they, they cannot look at him. 
Now, what's interesting, of course, is how this plays out. Uh, Just in redemptive history, uh, how it's talked about in the New Testament, how we experience it. Uh, Paul refers actually to this veil aspect of Moses pretty extensively uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, beginning in in verse, uh, verse 7, the testimony, if the ministry of death uh, carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? He, here's the, the sort of hermeneutical move that, that Paul is making. He's saying in the Old Testament, we get a picture of glory in a person. It's in Moses. Uh, there was a veil because not everybody experienced that. But in the New Testament, uh, we, we see it in its fullness. And we see it in its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, and we've already highlighted some of these connection points with regards to Exodus, when Jesus comes and tabernacles among us, when Jesus, who is, as Hebrews 1.3 puts it, the radiance of the Father's glory, when Jesus comes and, and he, he fulfills all that this going on here in the Old Testament is pointing to, when He fulfills the goodness of God, bringing both this unlimited, abounding compassion, mercy, forgiveness at the cross, coupled with the divine vengeance against sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, when Jesus comes and and fulfills all of that, what happens when He's on the cross? The veil of the temple is ripped. The veil of the temple is ripped so that we are once once and for all welcomed into the Holy of Holies. And it goes even further than that because not only does Jesus perfectly embody the glory that Moses reflects, but Jesus uh, gives us that same glory as we we are in union with Christ. So, what we see in Moses imperfectly, his skin, notice it was his skin that was shining. What you see in Moses imperfectly that was such a powerful, radiant vision for everybody else who didn't have it, what we see in Moses imperfectly is perfectly completed in Jesus, and it's given to us. In union with, uh, with Christ by means of the Holy Spirit, which is Paul's whole point there, is that the veil is taken away so that he concludes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So not only children, young people, adults who are crying, we're all broken in the midst of our messes, not only in the midst of war-torn Afghanistan or Croatia or wherever it might be, not only do we believe that we have a God who is good and full of mercy and compassion, 
But we believe that this God has taken up residence in us. As we surrender our life to Him, Moses' shining skin can't hold a candle to the glory that resides in you. I need to believe that. I, I need to press into that more and more. As I seek to love my wife, I need to know that I have the presence of the Lord in me so that I can love her with tenderness and compassion uh, more and more. I need to know that as I interact with you all, as I interact with people out in the culture, my mechanic, my neighbor, I need to know that. I need to believe that. I need to stand there. If I can rest, not in what my hands have done, but in the absolute finished work of Christ that is received by surrendering to His goodness. Even if you've committed adultery on your wedding night, the goodness of the Lord flows and takes up residence in our heart so that uh, the world will see and be amazed at the glory of God that is in us. Brothers and sisters, when you put together Exodus 32 to 34, you understand why these passages are quoted over, over and over and over and over again throughout the Scriptures. You know, Psalm uh, 103, Psalm 145 that we read earlier, Lamentations, Deuteronomy, Kings. Uh, I mean, just, it, it's throughout the Scriptures. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. You know, oftentimes it's said, the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful God. You don't know the God of the Old Testament if that's your opinion of who God is. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We see it most clearly in Jesus Christ. But that was not a hard left turn from the Old Testament. You know, He is the same. And this is what we have to offer to a people that desperately needs it. This is what the Lord invite you to this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, how it comes into our hearts and how it comes into our lives, this world that we live in. Father, I pray for those this morning that are, are desperate for just a drop of that goodness that you displayed to Moses. can relate, certainly been there myself. Lord, I pray that we would learn the truths of the Scripture, that it's not by might, not by power, but it's by surrendering our hearts to you, that the way up is the way down, humility, acknowledging our need. And Father, I, I pray that for the rest of us here, as we go out from Sunday into Monday, Tuesday, the rest of the week, that, that we would know that we do not go alone. But this, this same glory that Moses experienced and made his skin shown, 
that this same glory now inhabits us, and we are partakers of that. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, give us patience, for we know that sometimes these degrees in our life or in the lives of those that we love uh, sometimes seem hard-fought and slowly gained. But Father, we pray that our faith would be in you, a God who is merciful and gracious, full of compassion, compassion, abounding in steadfast love. We pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.